0: What's up, Leaf Nation? Scott Willets here, the in-arena host for your Toronto Maple Leafs, a host on Leaf Nation Network, and of course, the host of Leafs Forever Podcast. Um, I'm sitting here recording this little intro inside of my condo. Much like most of you guys, I am uh, in self-isolation. It's been kind of a little bit of a weird time with the COVID-19 epidemic and pandemic that has taken over the globe. But um, I think times like this is one of those times that you get to fall back and listen to the arts and this is one of the best things about being a part of Leafs forever is we get to tell you stories that maybe you have heard and maybe you haven't heard and this is a story that I think we all need to hear right now it's a story about the first african-american player to play for the toronto maple Leafs. his story is incredible the odds that he had to go against and, and conquer through is exactly what we need to hear in a time like this so I think you guys might really enjoy this and it will take your mind off of the uh the anxiety and uh, thoughts of the unknown that we're all dealing with right now with this epidemic. As we always say, Go leaves go. This is Val James, for games. Enjoy.
1: It doesn't matter whether it happened on the ice or whether I'm a professional player that it happened to, these type of events happen every day to ordinary people. You know, like maybe someone who's overweight, you know, how to being called Fatso all the time. And then, you know, that kind of hurts your feelings, too. And every time someone calls your a name, a little piece of you goes away.
0: That voice right there belongs to a man few Leaf fans can name, but who holds a very special place in the history of the franchise. His photo isn't emblazoned across a banner in the Scotiabank Arena rafters. In fact, you'd have trouble finding many pictures of him in a Leafs jersey at all. Because he only played four games in the blue and white. But that doesn't matter. When Val James got called up from the Newmarket Saints during the 1986 87 season, he became the first black player to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. To get there, Val had to overcome a late start in the game systemic disadvantages, racism, bigotry, and isolation. He was, in his own words, a duck alone on an island. But all of that makes the road Val took to the NHL, a road that began on a sugarcane farm in Florida of all places, amongst the most harrowing hockey stories ever told. Sure, on paper, you might think Val was just your average AHL enforcer who got a few peeks at the show before being cut down by injury. But because of who he was, and how he did it, and who he is today, Val James a name I'm ashamed to admit I didn't really recognize a few years ago, is now among my favorite Leafs of all time. And I think he's about to become one of your favorites as well. I'm Scotty Willits, and this is Leafs Forever. Hey, it's Freddie Anderson here, and I've just launched my very own music playlist called Frederick Anderson's 31. It features 31 of the tracks that I'm listening to right now you can check out 31 and all the official Toronto Maple Leafs playlist exclusively on Apple Music and the Leafs app. The history of black hockey, of the game being played and played very well by black players, goes back way longer than most people think. In 1895, the upstart colored hockey league of the Maritimes launched out of Black Baptist churches in Nova Scotia. By 1916, a guy named Fred Bud Kelly of the OHL's 118th Battalion team was scouted by the St. Pat's, the precursor to the Leafs, but never contacted. We don't know much about the whys or hows on that one, but we do know that in 1938, when Herb Carnegie, a Toronto boy and likely the best pre-NHL era black player, started suiting up for the Toronto Young Rangers, Leafs owner Conn Smythe is alleged to have said he'd pay $10,000 to anyone who could turn him white. Carnegie would get a tryout with the New York Rangers in 1948, but it would come to nothing. It'd be another 10 years before Willie O'Ree would become the Jackie Robinson of hockey when he laced them up for the Boston Bruins. In 1958, when O'Ree is making history, Val James was a year old, living as the son of a farmhand in Ocala, Florida. He couldn't feel the winds of change blowing through the world's arenas because North Florida was the Jim Crow South, and arenas, he'd never seen one. In a lot of ways, Hockey and Val James were never supposed to meet. Then, around the time he was three, James' parents decided to pick up and move the family over a thousand miles north to Long Island, New York. I caught up with Val at the Harry Gary Arena in Toronto, and I started our chat by asking him to give me a sense of who his folks were, and what inspired their move north. Better life, the racism
1: down there was pretty heavy, you're talking 60s, so uh, racism was still pretty strong. I was around for the uh, the racial riots, okay, I, I was only a kid, but I can remember seeing it on TV, and if you see some of the documentaries today, you'll see some of the things they did back there were kind of crazy, you know, they're sticking the dogs on people, they're, they're turning a full blast fire hose on people that's like it's disgusting then that breaks skin as soon as it hits Mm
0: -hmm. you know and bones too if you're if you're fragile from the sugarcane fields and block ice houses of northern florida to a horse and potato farm in long island everyone in the family works hard to contribute and that includes young val yeah i had my chores in the morning
1: i'd go (laughs) have to clean stables before i went to school and i hear that somebody smells like horse crap and it's like oh well gee thanks guys (laughs) but farming provides for you is discipline because you've got to get up every morning, execution, because you have to get it done, you have to get it done right. And one guy once said to me, what's the difference between a good job and a great job? Five minutes. What does that mean to you? That means that extra five minutes that you take to check what you've done makes your job look a lot more professional.
0: Okay, Val's father, Henry, is so hardworking that the farm proprietor taps him to be the night watchman at the local arena he owns. Soon, Henry is the operations manager and Zamboni driver and Val's his little sidekick. So now, a family from the South who'd never seen hockey before are now calling an arena their second home, a home they'd share with the Long Island Ducks of the rough and tumble EHL. Okay, you ever seen Slap Shot? The iconic 1977 film starring Paul Newman, inspired by that EHL. Even if you haven't, you probably recognize the depiction of a hockey that it popularized. The roughhousing Hanson brothers, stands filled with beer hurling fans and pretty much blatant disregard for the rules.
2: Failing him mercilessly, continues the and down he goes.
0: For Val James, this is hockey, and it hooks him. And I can remember going to a game,
1: John Brophy was playing, and there was another gentleman who came from the Charlotte Checkers, his name was Blake Ball, he was like 6'6", 240, 250 pounds. The game started, and I'm watching this, and there had a, another player come down, and he made this this great move on, on Bro. Blew right by him, stuffed him in the top corner. So the next time the guy came down, he made that move. Bro pulled back, speared him right in the forehead. <laughs> no messing around. Uh, no messing around. I'm standing there. I'm looking at this going, oh, my gosh. He just speared him in the forehead. It, it cut him for about 30 stitches, right? So I'm thinking, wow,
0: this sport's crazy. But you know what? I kind of like it. Hardcore Leaf fans, I know your ears just perked up. Yep. You heard that right. Val James is indeed talking about John Brophy, the flamboyant Leafs coach from the 80s. Brophy spent eight years playing on Long Island. He would inspire Val to play. But first, Val had to learn how to skate.
1: You know, I suck at this. They put me on an all-star team and I suck. You know, I, they, the play would be going one way. I'd be trying to turn and come back and catch the play. They'd already stopped and were starting to come back at me, so I had to do the big truck turn to try and keep up. It was <laughs> like, wow. And that's when I started uh, going on the ice. I'd get on the ice about seven o'clock because we, my dad, let us work at the rink. I wouldn't get off the ice till one o'clock in the morning, and I'd we'd, we'd, I'd go out with all the rentals. So I'd put my five bucks in the pot and you know play an hour with them. I did that for about two years. I went from uh, ankle bending to most improved player in our organization. But our organization had been put together by all the pro players that had stayed around and married some of the girls from the area. So they decided that they saw potential in all the, all the young kids that were playing the sport at the time. So they said, let us help you develop your program. And if you guys can develop your program properly, we can get some of your boys up and playing in the juniors up in Canada. Because at that point in time, the American hockey system was non-existent. They paid for all the ice time for all the teams. Amazing. Which was, was, was incredible. They gave us everything.
0: Now, these days, the U.S. has among the best development systems for young players in the world. Leaf star Austin Matthews grew up in Arizona, for God's sakes. But back in the 70s, there was practically no infrastructure. So, Val had to pack up and move to Ontario to go from his diverse community on Long Island to the small town of Midland, population 16,000 on the shores of Georgian Bay. Living as a billet in another family's home, the only black kid on his team, and one of the only black faces many in the community have ever seen, least of all on skates it's rough and tumble junior b hockey in some pretty edgy barns some guys decide to take a run at the new guy and when val defends himself he's branded an enforcer a label that would stick with him for the rest of his career a lot of guys that go
1: out and intentionally try to hurt people at that point in time were known as the goon okay they have no disregard for anyone they just want to go out and, and hurt people, maim people. If you have an enforcer, his job is to keep the goon in check. Okay, now, should he do something out of context? Well, you go over and, and introduce yourself to him. You no, know, Ask him how it's going. Are you having a good night? Because it's about to get bad. And
0: when he gets to the Quebec ramparts of the queue, well,
1: it's really on. The Barton boys... They were notorious. I didn't know that.
0: They just sound—they sound mean right now. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. Those guys.
1: Well, it's when we get out there and I'm hitting, and all of a sudden this guy's coming on to me about stop hitting. Uh, if you don't stop hitting, by the way, you should be playing football, shouldn't you? I'm going. Well, no, uh, they, I couldn't make the team. <laughs> so I, you know, got to be a smart, smart behind, right? <laughs> That's so good. Uh, I like that. So uh, I go. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Did you pack a lunch? He looks at me. Would you pack a lunch. I go. It's going to be an all day job, you know. <laughs> so he's kind of looking. He goes. I'm going to kill you when the puck drops. Yeah. I go, oh, so, so back then, phone call was a dime. So I go, What's your dime? I go, It's like that. He's going, Oh man, you're so dead. So the puck dropped. He dropped his gloves. I cut him six above the eye, six below the eye, and across the lip and separated his shoulder. They pretty much carried him off the ice. Was that the last time they messed with you? Mm, yeah. But the thing was that I hadn't intended to hurt him like that, you know, it was uh, just one of those fights that happened and most tough guys had respect for each other. We knew our our weaknesses, we knew our strengths. So we'd always come up and say, well, you know, we know we got to get five out of each other tonight. When are we going to do it? Are we going to keep him in suspense or are we going to blow it all in, in, in the first period?
0: To me, this is key, both in understanding the culture of enforcement and to understanding Val himself. Now, to the outside world, enforcers are pit bulls. They're bloodthirsty, rule-flaunting hooligans. But inside the circle, there's a fraternity with a code of honor. Now, honor means a lot to a guy like Val James, no matter how hard he's punching. Just to give you a sense, here he is talking about an all nice relationship that sprang up between him and a fellow enforcer he'd come up against years later, Ray Kyrbos really nice guy really
1: big guy could punch really hard mm-hmm. we'd see these guys like 16 times at home 16 times on the road it's like holy mackerel how's your wife doing how's the dog right Are you shaving this year <laughs> so uh so now he says to me pal pal I'm going yeah what's up Ray and the thing he'd say to me well I'm supposed to fight you but I can't fight you my nose is broken I go well Ray how about this you keep your head turned that way I'll punch in this side. Just make sure not to turn when I'm punching. I won't punch in the nose. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? We got to make each other look good. So being an enforcer, though, the anxiety and stress taking a toll now add to the fact that you're black and you're going into predominantly all white barns and ranks playing against predominantly all white teams. Mm -hmm. I imagine you must have dealt with a lot of hostility. Oh, wow.
1: Incredible hostility in some ranks. There was a time when I was playing in Winston-Salem. I come out, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, the the cheering was going on. As soon as I walked out and everyone got sight of me, everything stopped. All through warm-up and about halfway through the first period. The Mm N-bomb, the Mm S-bomb. They were doing this, 3,000 people in unison. So finally, the uh, public address gentleman got on and said, "You know, you got a gentleman here who's just trying to entertain you guys, and you were abusing him like this." I thought we had some southern hospitality here. What happened? I got to say that we, when we played in Baltimore, they weren't—they didn't like me at all there too much. And they used to have a couple of twin brothers, red hair. They—they they weighed probably about three fifty each, sitting in the box, and these guys are in, in bombing me to death from over the glass and. And now they bring the ugly stick, you know, the fishing pole mm-hmm. with the rod and reel. They, they hook a stuffed animal on it and shoot him over and they're bouncing it off my helmet. Okay, so I'm thinking, you know what? This is ridiculous. So finally the referee saw all of this happening, come over, completely stopped the game and said to them, I want those two removed. Very first time this has ever happened and it was never publicized. He goes, if they don't leave... For what they've done to him, your team's going to forfeit the game. So either you get security down here and get him out here, or you just give him the two points and he can go home.
0: Despite all the adversity, Val just keeps grinding.
1: Anyone can give up. Okay, it's easy to give up. Are you mad enough or do you have enough heart to keep going and jump over all those obstacles or turn those obstacles into a plus? In my case, with people calling me names, I took that portion of that and turned into positive energy that I used on the
0: ice. Now, it had been barely 10 years since Val had tugged on his first pair of skates bought for him by his dad. But dad never got to see Val's short-lived NHL career. Unfortunately, he passed just after Val received his first pro contract. But the encouragement he gave and the work ethic he instilled led Val from Florida to the big time, playing with the Buffalo Sabres against the Philly Flyers in 81, his NHL debut. It wasn't until later, as Val and I caught up again over the phone. Hello? Hey, Val. Hi, how's it going? That I had a chance to ask what that meant to him and whether he felt his dad looking down on the Buffalo Memorial Auditorium that night. I can remember going out in the ice and you know, saying a prayer and finally
2: saying, thanks dad, we finally made it. It was a, a wee thing because it's always been teamwork with me as I've been growing up and, and discipline as well. I'm pretty sure that my dad was, was looking over me that game I was pretty proud because I was proud of the fact that he hung in there and, and gave me the opportunity. And even when it did happen, I wasn't uh, thinking about being the first African-American born to play NHL hockey. It was a thought, but I really didn't concentrate on that. I concentrated on just being in the show. That was my main concern, and and, and hopefully being able to to secure a spot and stay there.
0: Val didn't get a lot of ice time in that first game. Then he rode the pine for the next two games. Against Quebec in Game 4, with a bunch of his old buddies from the Quebec League in attendance, Val came within inches of scoring his first goal against the Nordiques, ringing a shot off the post. The first real test would come in the two games he played against the Bruins, though. Val fights one of the notorious Crowder brothers and makes real short work of him, too. The Boston fans don't like it, not one bit. They attack the Sabres bus outside the garden, hurling beer bottles and racial taunts at Val. Val is livid, but he also knows he can't go after them, so he has to stand down. The only way he can get back at those bigots is on the ice the next time the two teams square off. Okay, that that was my mission. It was to fight Terry O'Reilly and beat him.
2: O'Reilly, O'Reilly O'Reilly throws the punch, flinging away with the left. And O'Reilly trying to get the left free, still going. Oh, he caught him with a left, he caught, oh, he's got it back, O'Reilly. Here's O'Reilly going at it, Williams is on his back with O'Reilly on top of him. Oh, O'Reilly struck Van Halemont. The the fans are now getting involved. O'Reilly's into the stands fighting with a Ranger fan.
1: Okay, so I come out, he comes out, well, he was on the ice first, and then I got the nod to go out, so I went out and... Terry lined up across from me, like, what you normally do. So I backed out two steps, and he liked to tee off. He liked to go about five, six feet into the circle and stand there and face on. I move over two steps. He moves over two steps. I move over two steps. He moves over two steps. By the time they dropped the puck, next thing I know he was down, I'm like, what just happened? (laughs) I'm going to the box going, what just happened? Did did I really just beat Terry O'Reilly?
2: And Val James, a newcomer with the Buffalo Sabres A former defenseman, really plays mostly on defense That is fast Just pounded O'Reilly down And uh, to the ice And he is going off
0: I love when you said that Terry O'Reilly also said You only got called up to fight him That was absolutely true No one can attest to how important a role music plays in an athlete's preparation more than our all-star goalie, Freddie Anderson. When he's not stopping pucks, Freddie can often be found with headphones on. To get a sense of what Freddie's been listening to, go check out the Freddie Anderson's 31 playlist on the Leafs app or on Apple Music. Throughout his time in the minors, Val had tried to round out his game, improve his finesse and playmaking, prove to the world that he was more than just a fighter. But once you're branded with a certain identity, it's hard to broaden anyone's mind. Eventually, fate would land Val in the Toronto organization and reunite him with a face from the past, the maniac he'd seen hacking down a guy back in Long Island as a kid, the gray ghost, John Brophy.
2: It was incredible. Remember going in, stepping out in the ice in Maple Leaf Gardens and you knew. It was like an icon, just getting on the ice with the, uh, the atmosphere of everyone behind you and cheering and being announced as the first black player to play for uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs was just an honor in itself, right? And then you think about all the players that come before, you know, at that, that, that time there was Dale Sittler, Kim Horton, Brian Clenny, you know, guys like that, Ed Shaq, you know, all, all the old names that, that people kind of remember but are little fading a little bit, I actually, got to stand and play on the same ice that these great players had all played on.
0: It would only be four games. That's a tiny window for proving yourself. And apparently Brophy knew he could make him an example. He only wanted Val to do one thing, kill people. The sad thing is that Val's rep had preceded him. In the NHL, no one really wanted to fight him. Even the legendary Bob Probert just opted to snuggle. In his final game in the blue and white, Val is asked to go and challenge Detroit Red Wing tough guy Basil McRae, but the opportunity never really presents itself. So, it was four games, and then Brophy was done with him.
2: Being an enforcer, you know you go out and you have to fight, but when you're chastised because the the person you were supposed to fight wouldn't fight, and you're told that, uh, you know what, just jump him in, destroy him that's not the type of hockey that I would want to play or I wouldn't want to ask anyone else to play and it's almost insulting because you know you're at the top level of a sport you know what you have to do in that case but you would taint your honor if you did it in that way and to me if you can't be honorable to yourself and to everyone around you then you're just another bozo If you know what I mean. But being sent
0: back down, it was it was crushing. Just imagine. And to hear that from one of the guys who'd first inspired you to play, who'd coach you as a kid, who'd been in your corner, who'd given you your shot, and now he was taking it away. John Brophy knew Val James would do anything. He'd take a beating, he'd absorb all the verbal abuse, he'd out-bag-skate them all. But when Val won't jump Basil McCray, he gets sent back down to the minors. The Leafs have suddenly lost interest, and at the end of the season, his contract, well, it isn't renewed. The message is, if you're not willing to be the killer we're asking you to be, there's no place for you here. And Val James' parents raised him to be somebody, to live with honor. He was a fighter, sure, he played a hard game, yeah, but he played by a code. Val left town with his honor intact but with a sour taste in his mouth. A year later, while in the AHL, playing for the Baltimore Skipjacks, he gets laid out with the career-ending hit. It's over, the dream is done. So yes, in the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Val's career could be read as a blip, but in reality, it is anything but. Val, I'm going to be honest with you. I was just like, I was reading your book and I was uh, at a restaurant. There is a guy who came up to me and he's like, it's crazy that you know who Val James is. Val James was the first person that my parents ever told me about. And it's funny, like my mom actually brought you up too. So like, the legacy that you've left is unbelievable. So when I ask you about your tour in the show, what do you want to be remembered as?
2: As being able to be down to earth with people and making sure that that moment in time was very special to them and to me. It's like we we saw a lot of people, a lot of very nice people that that wanted advice and I was able to hopefully steer their children in the right direction with discipline and all, and all the, the little things that we talked about during those meetings. But it was very enlightening I think for for both both sides. Me being that so many people knew who I was and actually recognized me and thanked me for my contribution to the sport. That's extremely satisfying. And then on the other hand, for people to find out that I'm a down-to-earth guy, that I'm very approachable, and that if I can do something that's going to help them, I will. So on both sides, it was it was a win-win, in, in, in my opinion.
0: You know what I learned about Val? That he never made excuses. Instead of complaining about his short stint with the Leafs, he praises it. Instead of being bitter at Brophy, he calls him one of his best friends. Instead of running away from this story, he runs towards it. This is Val in a nutshell. He works at Great Wolf Lodge now, and before my phone call interview with him, I jokingly said I wanted two tickets to the water park. A week later, he texts me to tell me he got me the passes. He's just really a good dude. And it was my pleasure to share his story. Today's episode was written by myself, Scotty Willets and Paul Matthews and produced by Katie Jensen and Vocal Fry Studios for Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Special thanks to the beautiful people who helped us tell this story. First and foremost, Val himself, but a big thank you also goes out to Kwame Mason, whose film Soul on Ice is a must-watch. Go rent it on iTunes. And Bernice Carnegie, the daughter of Herb Carnegie and the co-author of A Fly and a Pale of Milk, the Herb Carnegie story. I was torn on which book to recommend, that book or Val's own autobiography, Black Ice, which he co-wrote with John Gallagher. In the end, I gotta say they both are among my favorite hockey books of all time. We'll have the links on where you can buy both books in the show notes. Further thanks to our associate producers Ellen Payne-Smith, Jay Coburn, and Erica Dreher, Jordan Hales for consulting on this episode from the beginning, Dwayne Watson for his stage advice, and Nick Konorowski for his research. And if you liked the episode, well, tell people about it, both your hockey-loving and hockey-agnostic friends alike, and write us a review. Your feedback is always welcome. We'd love to hear what you think. I'm Scott Willets. Until next time, Go least Go.